Well, brothers and sisters, I ask that you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians found after the Gospels, the book of Acts, and then the book of Romans, and then you find Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians and chapter 6. The Corinthian church was the most immature church that was addressed by the apostles in the New Testament. They were in a very um, immoral city. It was a seaport city, and there was a lot of immorality, so much so that it became a proverb to commit immorality to, to say you have Corinthianized. To Corinthianize was to commit sexual immorality. They were very much influenced by the culture around them, both philosophically and morally. Philosophically, there was a lot of Greek philosophy, and they had adopted that Greek philosophy And Paul had to correct in the opening chapters of that letter a lot of their worldly wisdom and show how it contrasts with the wisdom of God. The wisdom of man can never bring them to God. They needed to adopt godly wisdom and not worldly wisdom. They were proud. They were divided into factions. Uh, We are of Paul. We are of Apollos. We are of Peter. We are of Christ. And he had to deal with that. From the immoral culture around them, they had become very much desensitized to sexual sin. So that in chapter 5, there was a man among them living with his stepmother, and Paul says this is something that's not even known among Gentiles. And they were arrogant about their tolerance of it. They had become so numb and desensitized to sexual sins. And then in chapter 6, their immaturity and their pride and selfishness is seen when they are taking matters of legal dispute to the pagan law courts. And so Paul addresses that problem in chapter 6 with these words. Does anyone among you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to, um, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between the brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? You see, going to the pagan law courts was a dishonor to the church. It was a dishonor to Christ. Paul says, aren't there wise men enough among you to decide these matters, but you need to go to unbelievers? And as John MacArthur says, you know, hang out your dirty laundry in front of them. And then verses 9 to 11, which is our text for this morning. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. How do these verses fit in? with the context. Well, they fit in with the overall context of the letter because in their immaturity, the Corinthians were still carrying a lot of baggage from the old life. And Paul wants to just highlight the contrast that there should be between your old life, what you once were, and the change that Jesus has made in your life. But as to the immediate context, he's telling them it's wrong to go to pagan law courts instead of settling matters among yourselves. And by saying what he says here, he highlights that by highlighting what was characteristic of the unbelievers. And basically, he's saying how foolish it is to take matters to unbelievers. They don't have the wisdom of God. They're not going to look at it from a godly perspective. And he's just underscoring the fact that what they were doing and going to the pagan law courts was wrong. So we're going to see three things from those verses. We're going to see first the confusion or the capacity for deception about those who enter the kingdom of God, the characteristics of sinners who will not enter the kingdom of God, and then the conversion needed to enter the kingdom of God. So let's consider first the confusion or the the capacity for deception 
about those who enter the kingdom of God. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now, the first thing I want to note is that Christians are not characterized by deception. How can I say that? Because of what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. You need not turn there, but might just listen. Why are Christians not characterized by deception? Well, listen. Ephesians 4.22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit or the deceitful lusts, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You see what he's saying? It is the old self. It is the old person that we were before we came to Christ that is characterized, corrupted according to the deceitful lusts. Deception was characteristic of all of us before we were converted. We were all subject to deceitful lusts. What does that mean? It means that we were fulfilling, carrying out the desires, the lusts of our minds and of our hearts, thinking that this would bring us happiness, this will bring us fulfillment, this is the secret to life, and yet we were deceived. Those things that promised life only brought to us death. William Hendrickson is eloquent here when he says, the 30 pieces of silver which had shimmered brightly in Judas's scheming, once in his possession had burned his hands, tortured his soul, and sent the traitor himself scurrying on his way to hanging and to hell. And then he says regarding David, in a moment of weakness, filled with passionate delight in the thought of pleasant days ahead with the object of his lustful yearning, was forced to listen to the words of the Lord, which like thunderbolts fell from the the lips of the prophet, you are the man, the sword will not depart from your house. A pre-converted life promised us, sin promised us a lot, but it didn't deliver. It promised life, but it only gave us death. Hendrickson goes on to say, truly the old nature flaunts a golden cup, but upon inspection it is found to contain nothing but filth and abomination. And I might say, if anyone is here and you're still outside of Jesus Christ, you've not been born again, you've not come to Jesus, this is still what is true of you. You're living a life of deception. You're living a lie. You're doing things contrary to the will of God that you think will bring you happiness and fulfillment in life, but it will not. Those things will come back to bite you in the end. It will not bring the satisfaction that they promise. But when we come to Christ, according to Ephesians 4 here, we lay aside the old self and we become a new self, a new person. And that one is not char- that new self is not characterized by the lusts of deceit or deceitful lust but rather characterized by righteousness and holiness in the truth. What truth? Well, in verse 21, he says, even as the truth is in Jesus. When we come to Christ, who is the truth, we now know the truth, we walk in the truth, we walk in true righteousness and true holiness, and we're no longer living a lie, no longer living a life of deception. So I say that Christians are not characterized by deception. The old self was the new self is no longer characterized by deception. But having said that, even though we are not characterized by deception, we are capable of being deceived. How do I know? Because Paul is saying here to these Christians, do not be deceived. You see, sin no longer reigns in us, over us, but it still remains in us. And let me read to you a number of occasions where Christians are addressed with the warning not to be deceived. Jesus himself, Matthew 24, 4, says to his disciples, see to it that no one misleads you. Same word, for many will come in my name saying, I am Christ and will mislead many. The word mislead or the word deceive is the word planao, from which we get planet. Planets were viewed as wandering bodies. And when you're deceived, you, you wander, you stray from the truth. And Jesus says, don't let anybody mislead you by claiming to be Christ when he's not. You're capable of being deceived. In Galatians 6, 7, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Don't think that there isn't a law of sowing and reaping. 
You sow the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. Don't be deceived, Christians. Here's another one, Colossians 2, 8, oh, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. A Christian can think, yeah, I can hang out with these ungodly people. I can party with them. I can live with them, and I'm not going to be tainted by them. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise. The companion of fools will suffer harm. Christian, don't be deceived. Colossians 2, 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. How many Christians get deceived and drawn into traditions of men, which they follow and put on a par with the word of God? They're being deceived. So believers, while not characterized by deception and delusion, are capable of being deceived. And what is it that they're capable of being deceived of here when Paul says, do not be deceived? He says, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is possible for Christians to be deceived as to who will inherit the kingdom of God. Who is a real Christian? Now, when we think of the kingdom of God, we know that the kingdom of God has both a present and a future dimension, right? Didn't we learn from Mark when Jesus comes on the scene in Galilee, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When Jesus came the first time, he brought the kingdom of God, namely the kingly reign of God, the kingly rule of Jesus Christ over our lives. Colossians 1 13, I think it was referenced already this morning. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. If you're a believer this morning, you are in the kingdom of God because you're under the kingly reign and lordship of Jesus. So the kingdom has a present dimension, but it also has a future consummation. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it says in Matthew 26, 29, Jesus says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So the kingdom is now, the kingdom also is then. There's a present reality and there's a future consummation. Here, when he says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's talking about the future kingdom. Why? Because when the word inherit is used, it's talking about the future. I'll give you just one reference in 1 Peter 1. This is what Peter says about the inheritance. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. What's the inheritance? It's your future reservation. You know we all have reservations in heaven, right? You don't have to fear dying and God saying, oh, I'm sorry, we have no record of a reservation. If you're in Christ, there's a reservation for you in heaven. But that's a future inheritance. And so he says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, they're not going to inherit the future glorious kingdom. But obviously there's a connection between the present kingdom and the future kingdom. Who gets to inherit the future kingdom? Those who enter now into the present kingdom through believing the gospel, right? So, but Paul is concerned here that these Corinthians are confused. And they're deceived as to who is a believer. Who's going to get into the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. They were being deceived. They were being confused. They were being deluded as to who was a true Christian. And friends, we can say that there has been for decades a massive confusion and deception among Christians in our day about this very matter. Who is a true Christian? For decades, evangelicalism has been plagued by what has been called decisionism, where people through the invitation system, through the altar call, are told to come forward to receive Jesus. And simply by virtue of the fact that they come, they make a prayer to receive Jesus, they're told now, Jesus is in your heart. You prayed the prayer. Don't doubt it. Any doubt is of the devil. 
And so they're led to believe that because they prayed this prayer, they're in Christ and their soul is safe. Now, to be sure, in some cases, when some people pray that prayer, it is sincere and it marks the point of their true conversion. But our concern should be for the greater majority of people who pray the prayer in a time of, of emotion, uh, and yet it's not accompanied with true repentance and faith. And simply on the basis of that prayer, that decision they made, they are told that everything's okay between you and God. You're saved. You're a Christian. You see, it's a very shallow and man-centered view of salvation. It makes man salvation determined by the will of man. But John 1 says, For as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become children of God, those who believe in his name, who were born not of bloods, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And just because a person makes a prayer and makes a decision that may not mark true conversion, and yet they're led to believe that all is well, and they're told by well-meaning evangelists and pastors that you're okay because you had that emotional experience. You came forward in the meeting. You threw your stick into the campfire or you prayed the prayer. And then growing from that false idea about what constitutes true conversion, these decision people are then told that it doesn't matter how you live afterwards because you prayed the prayer back then and made the decision back then, everything's okay. Even though there may be no evidence of new life, they think they're okay, and we should be concerned about that because it leads people into a false sense of security. And that practice is still alive and well in our day. It wasn't only the Corinthians who are deceived about who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many are deceived today, and many evangelical churches are, are filled with people who think they're Christians, and they've been comforted that they're Christians, and yet, if truth be told, they're not. Now, today, we are experiencing, we're in the midst of a horrible sexual revolution that is upon our nation and upon the world. And it feeds into this delusion. There are many in our day who are caving in to the pressure of culture, caving into the LGBTQ plus community and saying in order to be accepted by the culture, well, it's okay to be a gay Christian. It's okay. You can have that identification and still be a Christian. And so the delusion and the deception about who is a Christian is continuing and even deepening in our society. And so in order to correct this false idea about who are really in the kingdom of God now and bound for the eternal kingdom, the Apostle Paul goes on to give the characteristics of those who do not enter the kingdom of God. So he says in verse 9, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor, the, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. To end their confusion, to correct their delusion, he's going to tell them who it is who will not enter the kingdom of God. And we're going to look at these one by one, but before I do, I have a couple of preliminary points. And the first is this. Notice that Paul uses the word earlier in the chapter, and here, unrighteous. Unrighteous. Now, by using that word, he's assuming a standard. He's assuming that some things are right and some things are unright or wrong, right? And it begs the question, how do we know what is right and what is wrong in the world or in life? How do we know what is right and what is wrong? what we can call righteous and unrighteous. Well, there are only several broad possibilities. One is that each person can determine for him or herself what is right or wrong. And that's what we're having today with postmodernism. People deny that there's an absolute truth out there, and they talk about my truth and your truth. You can have your own truth, and I can have my truth. There's a problem with that. If your truth includes the fact that I think I can jump off a high building and fly, your truth is going to come into contact with a real hard reality outside of yourself called gravity. And how many of you want to have a doctor whose truth is that I don't need any medical training to be your doctor? Or how many of you want to fly in an airplane you know, from someone whose truth says, I don't need any flight training, I don't need any knowledge of physics or, or 
uh, aerodynamics or how the controls work. That's my truth. You're going to get an airplane with him? No, Mike is a pilot. He's not going to do that. Uh, if I'm going to fly with Micah, it's because he's had hours and hours of training in physics and aerodynamics, and there's an objective truth that he's submitting to. And so it doesn't work. Individualized, personalized truth just doesn't work in the real world. Well, there's another option. Okay, maybe truth is not found within myself, but maybe it's outside of myself in someone else. And so we look to some other guru, some other philosophy uh, to define what is right and wrong for us. The problem is, all these philosophies contradict one another. Which one is true? The philosophy of Islam will tell you it is virtuous to fly an airplane or fly another vehicle into a building to kill as many people as possible. That's a virtue. You want to follow that? All the ideas, philosophies, worldviews of men contradict each other. How do you know which one is right? Oh, here's a third option. You could say, I'm going to go with the consensus of society. I'm going to go with the majority flow of society. The problem with that is that society's values shift. Killing babies not too many decades ago was, was wrong in our society. Now it's promoted. Until 1973, homosexuality was considered by the American Psychiatric Association an aberrant behavior. It was listed as a mental disorder. That changed in 1973, and now it is just as normal and just as healthy as heterosexuality. So do you want to make society, the consensus of society, your standard of what is right and wrong? Are you willing to go with the flow of where society will take you? But for Paul, there is no moving target. He and the rest of the Bible writers, for that matter, can confidently speak of righteousness and unrighteousness or wickedness because they assume and presuppose that there is a God who is the creator of heaven and earth and who has a moral standard. And he has made himself and that standard known in human history, and those revelations have been written down, and they are found in the Bible that we call the Word of God. And so God in his word becomes the standard of moral right and wrong. And that's the first thing I want to note, that when he says unrighteous, he's assuming a standard. His standard is God, revealed in history and in the Bible. And then secondly, before we look at these particular things, characteristic of people who will not inherit the kingdom, please note that he's not talking about people who have once done these things. He's talking about people who habitually and characteristically, without repentance, ongoingly practice these things. He's not talking about, yeah, you did this in the past. He's talking about things that are a lifestyle, characteristic, current practices, so much so that the verbs have actually become nouns and people are defined by these things. So let's look at the list that he gives of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not in it now, and therefore they're not bound for the eternal kingdom. First, he mentions fornicators. It's the Greek word pornos, from which we get pornography. It has to, it's, the lexicons tell us it is a man who prostitutes his body to another's lust for hire, a male prostitute a man who indulges in unlawful sexual intercourse, a fornicator. It is the word used in the context of 1 Corinthians 5, where a man is living immorally with his stepmother. It is used in Hebrews 13:4, where God says the marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And there's a distinction made between this word, pornos, and adulterer, indicating that this sexual sin has largely to do with those who are unmarried. Sexual sins, sexual activity, intercourse by those who are not married. What follows is idolaters, worshipers of false gods. Now you say, wait a minute, he's on a roll with sexual sins here. Why does he 
sandwich idolater in the middle. Well, it was because with ancient religions, much of the ancient religions uh, practiced immorality. There were temple cult prostitutes. And so much of the idolatry of the day had to do with immorality. And then he mentions adulterers, the word moikos. And it is sexual sin committed by a married person with someone who is either married or unmarried. It has the idea of being unfaithful, and so it relates to unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant. Adultery under the Old Testament warranted the death penalty, and according to Jesus, in places like Matthew 5, Matthew 19, it has the power to dissolve a marriage. So you have fornication, sexual sin by the unmarried, and adultery, sexual unfaithfulness in the context of marriage. The next word in my translation, yours may be different, is effeminate. It's the word malakoi, and it literally means soft, as soft clothing. It's the word used of the clothing that John the Baptist did not wear. He didn't come with soft clothing. He had scratchy um, camel's hair, right? Uh, And so it's the word used of that. But Kevin DeYoung says he's not talking here about people who have a hankering for fine clothes. This softness is in the, uh, the context of, of sexual sin. And it's translated effeminate because it refers to a male who submits his body to unnatural lewdness and the one who plays the passive role in a homosexual relationship. That's the malakoi. The counterpart is mentioned next, translated in the NASB, homosexuals are senakoitai. For you adults, it's a compound word between men and bed. Tells you everything, doesn't it? Want to be discreet among young people? The compound word, men and bed. That's the word translated homosexual. That would be the more aggressive, initiating, initiating partner in the homosexual relationship. Using those words, the Old Testament, the Greek translation, Leviticus 18.22, says you shall not lie with a male as with a female. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13 says whoever shall lie with a male as with a woman. It says both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Now, some try to explain Paul away here by saying, no, he's not talking about men with men. He's talking about exploitative relationships, men with boys. But there's another Greek word that has the word paideia in it that he would have used if that was the case. Listen to... Ah, I want to quote John MacArthur from his commentary on 1 Corinthians. Homosexuality is condemned throughout Scripture. It was so characteristic of Sodom that the term sodomy is a synonym for that sin. The sodomite men were inflamed with perverted sexual desire, and on one occasion they surrounded Lot's house and demanded that the two angels who had come in in the form of men be sent outside so they could, quote, have relations with them, Genesis 19, 4 and 5. God completely destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because, quote, their sin was exceedingly grave. Since that time, sodomy has stood for sexual perversion, And the phrase Sodom and Gomorrah has stood for moral corruption. For believers, the terms also have come to stand for God's hatred and judgment of moral corruption. By Paul's day, homosexuality had been rampant in Greece and Rome for centuries. In his commentary on this passage, William Barclay reports that Socrates was a homosexual, and Plato probably was. When you talk about a platonic relationship, folks, you're not talking about something innocent, okay? We try to talk about a non-romantic relationship as platonic. Well, not really. Um, Plato's Symposium on Love is a a treatise glorifying homosexuality. It is likely that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. Nero, who reigned close to the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, had a boy named Sporus castrated in order for the boy to become the emperor's wife in addition to his natural wife. After Nero died, the boy was passed on, etc., Confusion of sex roles, like adultery, is particularly evil because it attacks the family. It corrupts the biblical plan for the family, including the standards for authority and submission within the family, and thus retards the passing of righteousness from one generation to the next. 
the most ungodly societies of history have been plagued by sex role perversions, no doubt because Satan is so intent on destroying the family. As Kevin DeYoung says, homosexual activity is not a blessing to be celebrated and solemnized, as in marriage, but a sin to be repented of, forsaken, and forgiven. Those engaged habitually in this lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then his next word is thieves. It's the Greek word klepti, from which we get kleptomaniac. It's one who breaks into a home and steals, but Judas was also called a thief because he used to pilfer the money box. The next word is covetous, those who are greedy to have more, greedy to have what they don't have, especially greedy to have what others have. And that indicates thieves and covetous next to each other indicates that God is not simply concerned about the act of sin. He's concerned about the heart. He's concerned about the motive of the heart. You may be excluded from the kingdom of God, of heaven, for never having stolen anything, but having a heart consumed by greed. I want, I want, I want. And so it's a matter of the heart, not just a matter of the actions. The next word, methusos, is drunkards. You know, the Bible doesn't forbid alcohol, but it forbids drunkenness. Why? Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, which is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. When your mind is clouded by alcohol or drugs, you're, you're withdrawing from the influence of God. You can't be under the influence of God if you're under the influence of some alcoholic beverage or some drug. And so the alternative to being influenced by wine is being filled with and influenced by the Holy Spirit. You know, we have fallen prey in recent decades to the medical model, and so we've substituted alcoholism. Very convenient. It, it, it looks at it as a disease. And granted, it can become a disease, but at heart, it's not a disease. The, the word drunkard focuses on the responsibility of the person who drinks too much. The word alcoholism says, oh, this disease has come upon me. No, it hasn't. You've made choices that have led you in that direction. The next word is revilers. It means to reproach or heap abuse upon. The Pharisees in John 9 abused and heaped abuse upon the blind man because he said Jesus had healed him. In 1 Corinthians 4.12, he says, this is the way we and the other apostles are always treated. We are, we are reviled. And it's the word used in 1 Peter 2.23 that says, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. So it means to reproach and destroy with the tongue. And in the New Testament, it seems to be reproaching the servants of God or Christ himself. The next word is swindlers. False prophets are said to be ravenous wolves. That's the same word. The Pharisee in the temple gives thanks that he's not like other men. I'm not a swindler. It's a word that is used of robbing in a more indirect way by extortion, embezzlement, false advertising, that sort of thing. Well, he gives just this sampling of those who are not on their way to heaven. Why does he choose these? Because not an exhaustive list but because these were things especially characteristic in the wicked city of Corinth. And so he says these things to end the confusion of the Corinthians, to, to rid them of their delusion and deception as to who's going to get into heaven. They needed to have clear categories about who was headed for heaven, the kingdom of God, and who was not. And he's saying these are lost people. They're not going to heaven. But Paul does not want to leave on a negative note. Though he describes people who are lost and outside the kingdom, he didn't want to end on a negative note, and there might be a couple of reasons for that. One is to humble the Corinthians, and we'll see why in a minute, and the other is to give tremendous hope, tremendous hope to those characterized by these things or any other things. And so let's go on to consider finally the conversion needed to enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't end there. Okay, these kinds of people, they're not going to heaven. If they live that way as a lifestyle without repentance, they will not go to heaven. Ah, uh, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I say that by saying this, it should have both a humbling effect on his readers and a hopeful effect humbling because the Corinthians were still practicing some of those things of the old life, and he wanted to show the contrast. This is what unbelievers do. It's not how you should be living as a, as a Christian now. 
Also to remind them, this is why you don't go to the unbelievers in their law courts, because this is what they're like. They don't know God. They don't have the wisdom of God. But also I wonder if he says this to the Corinthians, such were some of you in order to keep them from a self-righteous pride. You see, the Corinthians were capable of flip-flopping. Back in chapter 5, they had an immoral man among them, and they were arrogant. Paul says, you ought to mourn. So he says, excommunicate the guy. So they excommunicate the guy, and then we read in 2 Corinthians 2 that now they're being so harsh that the guy is broken, and they're not repenting, and they're not forgiving him. So they, the pendulum swung from a, an arrogance and a toleration to a harshness. And could it be that they were fully capable of looking with esteem and respect upon these unbelievers to looking with self-righteous pride? Oh, yeah, 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 they're, they're that. We're not that. They were capable of such flip-flopping. And so to safeguard against that, he says, such were some of you. These people aren't going to heaven, but remember what you were. Remember the cloth from which you were cut. Such were some of you. Paul had spent a year and a half in Corinth. He could have easily closed his eyes and pictured the congregation and easily have remembered some of their faces and said, oh, yeah, there was that guy. Yeah, he had committed adultery before. Oh, and, and that one, yeah, a fornicator sleeping around before he ever got married. And that, that man was such a drunk. And then, oh, yeah, yeah, homosexual, lesbian, reviler. Oh, that man's tongue was so wicked, it was a sword just cutting people to ribbons. Oh, yeah, you got people like that among you. Such were some of you. You were like that. To humble them, then he comes with the strongest Greek adversative, Allah, three times. But, but, but. Three blessed buts. You're like that, Corinthians. You were no better. Something happened. What? First, but you were washed, apaluo. Perhaps the best cross reference is. Titus 3.5, which talks about the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. If it's talking about regeneration, it says you were washed of that old nature, that old person that you were. You became a new creation in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creation. You've been washed of what you were, and now you're new. You've been regenerated. You were washed. And all of these, by the way, are in the aorist tense in the Greek, which means once and done. The next is, but you were sanctified. The family of words, saint, sanctify, holy, sanctification, all has the root idea of being separated from the profane and separated unto God and unto holiness. Now, generally, when we think of sanctification, we think of a process, don't we? And it is a process, but what is spoken of here is what theologians would call definitive sanctification. It's what kicks off the process of sanctification. It's probably what Paul means when he says in Romans 6.6, 6, our old self has been crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with. And here's the operative, operative phrase, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. By definitive sanctification, in initial conversion, the backbone of sin's ruling power is broken. You're no longer a slave to sin anymore. And that kicks off a lifelong process of mopping up and growing out of your sin. But it's a definitive sanctification, probably put here before justification because he wants to emphasize the change that God has made in them who were formerly these things. And so you have the immoral persons, the heterosexual fornicator, the heterosexual adulterer, and the various forms of homosexuality, when they come to Christ, when they're washed, what happens? Now they adopt God's way of sexuality and they see it as only between a man and a woman in the covenant relationship of marriage. They rid their lives of pornography, which tempted them to that sin. And they begin to fight against sexual lust, even in the thought life, as Jesus said, if you just lust in your heart, you commit adultery in your heart. They will seek out mature believers to hold them accountable. 
to fight against their sin, and they will continue to fight against it and put it off. For the former idolater will now worship the true God. The former drunkard no longer needs to dull his senses with alcohol and drugs because he's got the Holy Spirit filling him now and influencing. Paul tells us about the thief, the former thief in Ephesians 4, let him who steals steal no longer, rather let him work with his hands that he might give to those who have need, so that in the case of the thief who is sanctified, instead of those grubby hands stealing, those hands work and those hands give. With regard to that reviling sword-like tongue, he says in Ephesians 4.29, let no rotten communication proceed from your mouth, but that which is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it might impart grace to those who hear Instead of cutting and slashing and destroying, that tongue becomes an instrument of grace and building up. That's the change that sanctification makes. And friends, it is not by human willpower. It is all by the grace of God. And there is not only justifying grace, but there is sanctifying grace. And Paul speaks about it in Titus 2.11 when he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, forgiving us, not here, rather instructing us to deny or training us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. This change is all affected by the sanctifying grace of God, which is unleashed when a person comes to Jesus Christ. And then the final blessed, but, but you were justified. Justified, of course, justification is that legal act of God by which he looks upon a guilty sinner and based upon the perfect life and righteousness of Jesus, he he does a transfer. He takes your sin, puts it on Jesus and takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus and puts it on you. So here you are, deep in the red, deep in debt to God, a debt you will never repay in hell forever. And God takes that debt, puts it on Jesus, and puts you in the black with the righteousness of Jesus. He looks at you clothed with the filthy garment of your own sin, and he takes it off, puts it on Jesus, and he takes the perfect spotless robe of Jesus' righteousness and clothes you with it And until the day you die into eternity. You are clothed with that righteousness, and that's the way God sees you as perfectly righteous in his sight based on what Jesus has done. God made him who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The double exchange. Jesus gets my sin I get his righteousness. And notice he says there in 6.11, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this full salvation comes only in conjunction with Jesus. Name stands for all that he is in his person and work. And it is only based on the perfect life of Jesus lived on our behalf and the substitutionary death of Jesus by which he died in my place to suffer for my sins. Only in the name of Jesus do we have this salvation. And he says, in the spirit of our God, every member of the Trinity is involved in the work of salvation. The Father plans it. The Son purchases it. The Spirit presents it. Or if you will, God administered it. Jesus accomplished it, and the Spirit applies it to us individually in life. So, brothers and sisters, just a few applications, and we're done. What should we take away from this? First of all, I say to my fellow believer, be clear as to what is right and what is wrong. Paul refers to righteous and unrighteous. Be clear. There's no reason for us to be deceived or confused about what is right or wrong in life. The world around us is constantly trying to justify its own lifestyle. See, everybody knows that there's a God. God has put that knowledge. Romans 1, when they knew God through creation, they know God through what God demands morally. We not, not only that there's a God, but we know that he has a moral standard. The works of the law, what the law of God demands of us, is written upon everybody's heart. Man knows that. He also knows there's a judgment. He's going to be judged by this God. And he feels guilt. And yet, we so love our sin. Men love the darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They so want to cling to their sin and yet somehow justify themselves before the deity. So what do they do? 
Well, they change the standard and they try to make their standard the right one. And they try to call evil good and good evil. And that's what's happening in our society, isn't it? We're calling good evil and evil good because men know what is right, but they want to justify their, hold on to their sin. And so they try to justify the things that deep down they know are wrong. And when you're living in a culture that has been given over to that depravity, the pressure to conform is tremendous. And sadly, we're seeing some evangelicals caving in to the morality of the culture and not standing firm. The pressure is tremendous. You're going to be called a hater. You're going to be called unsophisticated. You'll be accused of having a phobia. You'll be accused of being ignorant or even unscientific if you accept the morality of the Bible. But dear friends, if the God of the Bible is the true God, and we know that he is, and if the moral law of God given in the Bible is the true standard of righteousness, how loving God is to give us that moral law. Because, you know, it's by following God's ways that we will have true happiness. You know, if you have to put together a toy or a piece of machinery, doesn't it work best when you follow the manufacturer's instructions, right? And God has given us the manufacturer's instructions. This is the way to live in my world. This is the way uh, to, to, to reap good things from sowing good things. Here's my law. His law is good. It's for our happiness. And when we stray from it, it's always to our own hurt. Drunkenness has never done anybody any good, but it has wreaked untold havoc upon society. Thievery and greed has never done anybody any good in society. And sexual activity outside the bounds of the loving commitment of marriage only hurts people. It hurts those who do it. It hurts families that are destroyed because of it. Sexual deviance from God's way only brings harm. Why? Because God is good and his law is good. He's also good in giving us his law in that it shows us that we can't keep it. Romans 3.20, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. What a kindness of God to give us the law in full force to show us I can't keep that law. And so it drives us to another way of salvation. I need someone to keep the law on my behalf. And there is one, Jesus. And I need someone to suffer for the law I've broken. And there is one, Jesus. How good God is to give us his law for that reason. And friends, you want to love your neighbor? It's not by accommodating to their sin and agreeing with them when they call evil good and good evil. It's by giving them in a loving, gracious way the moral law of God. No matter how it cuts against their standard, no matter what you're accused of, you want to really love them. They need to face the truth about God because that's the God they're going to face in the judgment. They might as well face him now and to show him, show them that there's another way. So believer, don't you be confused about what is right and wrong in our day. Secondly, believer, don't be confused or deceived about who is destined for the kingdom of God. All right? That's where their deception lay. Don't be confused about that. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Salvation involves not only forgiveness of sins, it involves a change in your life. In fact, earlier in chapter 4 of this letter, he says, the kingdom of God does not consist in word, but power. Who's going to heaven? Not those who simply prayed a prayer, went forward in a meeting, mouthed the fact that Jesus is my Savior, but those who have been visibly transformed into new creations by the grace of Jesus Christ. They are the ones going to heaven. And please understand that even when we're converted, we're not perfected. Even after saying in Romans 6, 6, the old man is crucified with him, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's a great reality. But then you come to chapter 7, and you get a, a little window on Paul's struggle as a Christian. And most Reformed theologians believe this is Paul speaking as a Christian. And he's saying, the good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, I, I do. Wretched man that I am. And he talks about this perpetual struggle between remaining sin in the flesh and the law of God and the spirit of God within him. And so I don't want to paint an unrealistic picture. We're not saying that it's an easy road. And I know people who have come out of homosexuality and been gloriously saved. You know, with some sins, God seems to just flip a switch and you're done. 
In other cases, it's a bloody long battle. But the evidence that you're his is that you're fighting the fight. And you're saying, oh, wretched man that I am. I don't want to do that anymore. And I'm praying and working against doing that because I love the law of God and the spirit of God is within me. And so one of the evidences that you are in the kingdom is that you're fighting the good fight, although it is a fight and often a very long one. I say that to believers. And then finally, I say, here is the greatest hope for sinners in any church especially a sizable one, maybe unlike ours, you're bound to find people who were former this, former that. We're all former something, aren't we? Every one of us is a former something. You may be a former drunkard, a former adulterer, a former fornicator, a former, former homosexual, a former thief, a former reviler, or maybe you fit into the other catalogs of sin, which I don't have time to read, but there are plenty of catalogs of sin that have a lot more sin than that. It really doesn't matter what your sins are. It doesn't matter how long you have committed them. It doesn't matter how deeply entrenched those sins are in your life. Because Jesus Christ is a great Savior. And there is more mercy in Christ than there can ever be sin in you. And so why we decry these sins and call them unrighteous, we hold out the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone. No one is beyond the saving blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to bring to our world. Yes, we need to stand against the moral depravity and the calling evil good and good evil in our day. We need to stand with a backbone, but we need to stand with grace and say, there's a better way. There's freedom. It's in Jesus Christ. Let's pray and then let's sing Psalm 44. Oh, Father, help us on the one hand to uphold your righteous law unembarrassed, uncompromised, unashamed, no matter what that brings to us. But at the same time, Lord, help us not to end with laying the law on people, but to offer them the gospel that no matter how deep their sin, they can be washed, they can be sanctified, and they can be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. We ask in Jesus' name.